welcome to Disinformation Wars, a project of the American Foreign Policy Council. I'm AFPC Senior Vice President Elon Berman. Disinformation Wars is a series of conversations with officials, experts, and practitioners designed to take you behind the scenes of the struggle for hearts and minds of global publics that's now taking place around the world. It's a contest being waged by Russia, China, Iran, and other actors, and the stakes could not be any higher. Welcome back to Disinformation Wars, and happy holidays! This is our final episode of 2023, and we're finishing the year with a bang by going back to the beginning, so to speak, and focusing on Russian disinformation. This, as all you listeners know, is a topic that's near and dear to my own heart. Over the past year, I've been doing a deep dive into the mechanics of Russian disinformation and the governmental responses that assorted Western governments have erected to it. The result was a study entitled Challenging Moscow's Message, Russian Disinformation and the Western Response, which was published by AFPC back in October. It's available on Amazon in both paperback and ebook form for those of you that might be interested. I've taken the liberty of including a link in the show notes for all those of you who might be interested in some not so light holiday reading. It's certainly a timely topic because in recent weeks, we've been reminded once again, just how pervasive and how effective Russia's manipulation of the information domain truly is. We can see this currently in the context of the Israel-Gaza war as a result of which social media has become awash with new and misleading tropes driven in no small part by Russian, as well as by Chinese actors. And we see this in the context of the Ukraine war, where Kiev's less than successful counteroffensive and growing resistance here in the US to continued aid has given new life to Russian propaganda. So what can be done about all this? Where is the soft underbelly of Russia's information operations? And how can the Kremlin's weaknesses be exploited by the United States and its allies? No one knows the answer better than my guest for this episode, Thomas Kent. Tom is the former president of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, which he helmed from 2016 until 2018. Before that, he had a lengthy career at the Associated Press, in which he led AP operations in Russia and Iran, served as NATO correspondent in Brussels, and was international editor and standards editor. He's currently a consultant to governments and NGOs on combating disinformation as well as a senior fellow at the Jamestown Foundation, which published his book on how to fight Russian disinformation entitled Striking Back in 2020. His latest book, also published by Jamestown, is How Russia Loses, which looks at cases where Russian influence operations have failed or have been successfully thwarted. Tom, terrific to have you on. Thanks for having me. All right. A good place to start on this subject is the 60,000-foot view. Can you spend a couple of minutes explaining what role exactly disinformation plays in Russian strategy? This is obviously a historical topic, but why has the Kremlin relied on it so extensively in the past? And why is it continuing to do so, so much? Because it works. Information warfare has been at the center of Russian strategy for a century. The Bolshevik revolution took place in great part because of propaganda work that Lenin and his lieutenants did among Russian workers and military people. Then after the Bolshevik revolution, the Soviets had to convey somehow the idea of communism to an enormous disconnected country of largely illiterate people. That took major propaganda efforts. Then as soon as the Soviets consolidated their power in Russia, they became convinced that Russia could never survive by itself as the only socialist state in the world. So they had to try to foment revolution in other countries. So that was another propaganda challenge. And then after 
World War II, they had to convince millions of deprived people inside Russia and in East Europe that prosperity was around the corner, or at least would be if it weren't for all the uh, machinations of the West. So propaganda operations are second nature to Russian strategists. They always have been, and they're often first nature, uh, used as a first resort. Why commit military forces when you can accomplish what you want by propaganda? Well, that's a great overview, and, and it really highlights something that jumped out at me in my own research. Over the last year, I've spent a lot of time in Central and Eastern Europe, and in almost every country that I visited, right, the Czech Republic, Sweden, Estonia, and, and quite a few others, there seems to be an understanding, at least now, that the bear is at the door, so to speak, that Russia is continuing to actively seek to manipulate the information environment in those places. Why is that, do you think? Well, I wish that country after country in Central and East Europe, even in West Europe, were aware that the bear is at the door. From what I see, European populations are very split. Almost no one likes the invasion of Ukraine. But a lot of people in East Central Europe, West Europe, are at the same time tremendously disappointed with their own governments and with their own country's implementations of democracy. So they wind up aligning themselves with the biggest anti-government forces in their country, which are often the right wing. And when people do that, they're thinking mainly about economic issues and, and fear of immigrants, but they also get pulled into a more general right-wing orientation where Putin might not be viewed as a hero, but people think that maybe he has the right idea in being against multiculturalism, against LGBT, for family values and so forth. And in any case, they think Ukraine is some problem for him, not for us, uh, and we should be spending our money at home. I mean, there certainly are a lot of government officials and educated people who are quite aware of the Russian threat, but it's not in every country like this massive feeling that dealing with Russia is priority number one. No, and I think that's a fair point. And certainly what you described, the way the Russians have managed to manipulate local issues to advance their own strategic objectives, to highlight economic dislocation as a result of the Ukraine war or amplify fear of refugees, for example, right? That's a very real thing that you see all over Central and Eastern Europe. And it really, I, I, I think, underscores the point that what the Russians are trying to do is in many ways informationally to divide and conquer. And at least somewhat, th this is being successful, right? You're beginning to see this in the context of the polarization of politics all over the European continent. And the Russians have a, a pretty significant hand in it. Well, yeah, uh, except I would say that if, it, if Russia didn't exist, other things going on would probably be polarizing populations and in Europe anyhow, economic problems, migration, all these things, so the speed of social change, globalization, all of that. But the Russians have been very smart in being able to grab onto the coattails of this general discontent and insert their own objectives at the same time. There's another problem here as well, I think, because at least from where I'm sitting, there's a real gap in understanding across the Atlantic of the Russian disinformation threat. Because at least from what I've seen, 
in a lot of European nations, Russia's 2014 invasion of Ukraine and its subsequent unilateral annexation of Crimea served as a real wake-up call. And a number of governments have been mobilizing in response, right? Not all of them, but a, a number of them have been mobilizing, including in the information domain. But here in the US, we seemed back then to have mostly missed that moment. Since then, we've been really slow to get serious about the issue. Is that a fair criticism, do you think? Well, I guess the first thing is not to overestimate what uh, Europeans have done in the information domain. European governments have not thrown themselves into information operations to contest Russian narratives anywhere near at the scale where they might. A lot of uh, European officials uh, talk to them. They say, well, we don't do propaganda. We don't want to be like them. They equate, of course, any kind of assertive defense of democracy as, as something that inevitably is going to slide into disinformation. So as a result, they, they don't want to do propaganda or anything that, that sounds like it or feels like it. They have no real structure for information operations. Their own populations have declining confidence in the value of democracy. Uh, a lot of West European countries, East European countries too, are, are based on kind of shaky coalitions that include right-wing elements that would oppose not only anti-Russian IOs, information operations, but probably any pro-democracy campaigning at home. The EU fights a good fight with uh, a few websites like EU versus Disinfo, but it's not really very effective on the ground. Uh, think of all the money that the EU pours into Serbia, which is um, by far the greatest source of, of international aid that Serbia receives. Most people in Serbia will tell you that Russia does more for them than any other any other country or bloc. And they, the, um, the EU lets Hungary chop away at the whole fabric of European unity every time there's a summit. Look what happened in Slovakia, a country that is um, sort of sliding into the Hungary column after uh, an election uh, a few months ago where very little seemed to be deployed in the information arena by the EU or, or, or anyone else. You know, it's not a completely awful picture. Some Western countries do make some efforts. A lot of them put money into media literacy programs, supporting fact-checking groups, supporting civil society, independent journalism. All this is very meritorious, but it's not really getting to the jugular in real time. No, I, I think that's a fair point. And to layer on top of the somewhat glass have empty interpretation that you, that you just had, um, I would point out that money is a pretty good indicator of seriousness. And one of the big takeaways from my study is the fact that the disinformation ecosystem, the environment in which these countries are operating in, is mostly derivative. A, a whole bunch of them, right? The vast majority of them don't have self-sustaining federal budgets to counter Russian disinformation. They rely on grants from US entities, from the European Commission, from what have you. But the end result is that this whole ecosystem, this whole architecture becomes really fragile because it's subject to disruption if, for example, there is a retraction of American aid or if, for example, funding priorities change in Brussels. And that makes it, that, that's an advantage for Putin and it's a disadvantage for everybody else. 
Yeah, it's also uh, put at risk by these foreign agent laws that one country after another tries to pass. So these these are all issues. I mean, obviously, you want independent journalism in these countries to be sustainable uh, and uh, and there to be a um, an ability for civil society groups to finance their own operations. One very bright aspect of this is that these organizations in different countries are starting to work across borders, and we, uh, which gives them additional strength, additional ideas, additional uh, strategy. And you know, in worst case, if uh, some some country should really ban any kind of um, local pro democracy work. Uh, it's possible that uh, people in another country could sort of take over in a way. So, you know, actually working inside the the victim country's um, uh, information environment. There are a lot of possibilities, but but the it all comes down ultimately to scale. And one of the pities is that information operations are really so cheap compared to, you know, buying a tank or something like that. So this is a, a bargain basement kind of strategy that that pays huge dividends that for all the reasons that I enumerated, Western countries are often very much afraid to venture into this area for fear that they will take a page from Russia's playbook, which is not exactly what we're talking about. What, you know, my my motto is sort of, uh, we should always tell the truth, but there's a lot of truth to tell. And there's a lot of things that should be said about authoritarianism in general, and uh, and certain authoritarian countries in particular, that is just not being told in any kind of way that that resonates with large, broad publics outside cafe society in the capital, uh, but that that reaches all the different levels of population in at-risk countries. Let's get into that a little bit because your point is, I, I think, apt. You know, from where I'm sitting, we're definitely at a disadvantage here at home. And there's lots of reasons for this uh, in the information domain. Part of it has to do with the fractious state of our domestic politics currently, but part has also to do with declining trust in the media writ large because less and less Americans seem to be trusting the fourth estate and fewer and fewer think that journalists are being impartial in their coverage of a whole host of issues. What, what are you seeing and how do we remedy this? Well, the impartiality of US media has been in decline for a decade or more, which is not necessarily bad in principle. In Europe, it's been very common forever for newspapers to have clear political leanings and you know, in the UK, you've got labor newspapers, Tory newspapers, everybody knows where these newspapers are coming from politically. So this idea of a newspaper having a point of view is something new to us in the US. Traditionally, US newspapers have always prided themselves on, on being a, a central point of reference for everybody in town, whatever their politics. But, you know, whether that's sustainable in the long term, I don't know, it seems not to be. So we have this declining imp impartiality. And of course, since in the United States, everything's more dramatic than anywhere else, what's happened is that uh, these publications and television networks in, in the US have, have gone to extremes where sometimes they, they, they not only are very partisan in their commentary, but stretch the facts so far that it's hard to tell that what's, what's really true or not. So how to fix it? There are a lot of possibilities. To begin with, journalists should do better 
because this rush to the bottom threatens all of them, even news organizations that are uh, very wealthy and very credible, even, even you know on the right or on the left, all will be swamped if there's if there's a move toward total partisan media and and lack of respect for the truth that will it will sink all of them. Uh, the part of the solution is at the local level, people tend to have more confidence in local news media because they can see for themselves whether they're they're telling the truth or not. So the strengthening of local news media and, you know, I mean, Gannett will probably never come back as a as kind of organization it was. But there are a lot of people building uh, local news organizations, universities, libraries, citizen groups. They not, may not be very flashy, but but they, they they get the job done and can be credible and and raise people's belief in facts and media at a local level, even if it's going to take the national media some time to come around. And I think something you referenced before is also crucially important because you talked about how there are multiple countries in Europe that are now focusing on media literacy. The trend line that we're seeing in the United States is that as popular trust in news organizations, newspapers, television channels, radio stations, what have you, as it declines, people are more and more going online without a very healthy understanding of the potential pitfalls of platforms like TikTok, for example, or Twitter, and at least a way to begin to try to square the circle that I heard about in places like Prague and in Tallinn and in Vilnius is the idea of media literacy, the idea of from a young age, educating the populace to be mindful consumers of information, to understand that information may not be impartial, but to be able to discern better where the truth is being stretched or distortions are being intentionally inserted. Yeah, it's true. It, it, media literacy has many advantages. It also has, I think, some limits because media literacy presupposes that there will always be excellent models of journalism that people will naturally select. But when you look at some of the mistakes that major media make in reporting the world, and we've seen some of this during the Gaza war and so forth, where everybody falls into these these false reports, you have a you know freshly minted, proud graduate of a media literacy class, and they look at what are supposedly our our leading most credible news media, and they see major failures. I mean, how do we know that they're going to keep pardoning uh, the you know the major news media and not slide to to some place where where even the facts are wrong? So. Part of media literacy is actually the media getting better and holding its high its standards. There's, there's sort of this um, feeling, uh, and it sort of seems to me with media literacy, to some degree, we're blaming the victim. You know, we're saying you're so ignorant that we're going to come down and tell you what to believe. And you're then going to wind up reading the New York Times every day as a result. I don't think all of that connects. Uh, so... People have to be more wary of bad reporting, but all the major news media on the right and left have to themselves be more wary and 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 produce a product that a graduate of a media literacy class will will rush to. 
All right. So beyond media literacy, here's the question. How do we strike back against Russian information operations? I, I, I have my own ideas on this, but I, but I really want to hear your thoughts. You wrote a whole book about it. And I'm curious as to what you see as the chinks in Russia's informational armor. Well, I think there's 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 a number of them, things that that they tend to do wrong. For one thing, Russia doesn't really expect Western governments or civil society movements to be assertive. So when they are, Russia can be caught out. And there are a lot of examples of this where Russian influence suffered either permanent or temporary losses. Just a, a couple examples. There was a critical issue in Macedonia in 2018 to 2019 about getting some constitutional changes made there that would make the country eligible to join NATO and the EU. And Western countries, uncharacteristically, rushed into Macedonia with uh, with social media experts and PR advisors and Angela Merkel visited it, and, and, and Theresa May ver, uh, visited there, and they worked with civil society groups, even made use of a wiretap. There is also some, um, shall we say, pretty dynamic pressure on various members of parliament to vote the Western way. And the whole this whole Western effort just overwhelmed the, the efforts by Russia and, and its allies to block these constitutional changes. When it comes to the Nord Stream pipeline, the U.S. and surprisingly Denmark used legal processes and sanctions to delay the completion of the pipeline for two years, which basically meant that uh, by the time Russia invaded Ukraine, it was still not in operation, and the Europeans had nothing to lose because they weren't they weren't dependent on this on this Nord Stream two pipeline. In South Africa, the um, uh, civil society there and the courts blocked an enormous deal for Russian nuclear power plants with a, with a price tag that, that, that could have made South Africa an economic vassal of Russia for decades. And that, that attempt uh, to push through that deal was one of the main reasons for the resignation of Jacob Zuma as president in 2018, who was the most pro-Russian leader South Africa had ever had. You know, as the French say, ce n'est pas sorcier. You don't have to be a wizard to do this stuff. It's just a question of noticing Russian weaknesses, marshalling information efforts, civil society, courts, legislation, and maybe a little extra cleverness at a key moment, and things can be made to happen. The Russians spend a lot of time setting up alliances with, with flimsy leaders who uh, have no real support. The Russians pay very little attention to offering any kind of concept of how a country can actually become wealthy or progress. All they do is spread sort of a negative, you know, like a hatred toward the West. They don't really have any good ideas that they propose. Russian institutions contradict each other and, um, and work at cross purposes. There, there's a whole book that, that just goes through all these things that they tend to do wrong, but it all depends on the West and civil society groups and so forth in these countries, recognizing that this is a, a vulnerability that we're seeing right now. So we need to take advantage of it. Okay, so final question, and it's the holiday season. So I wanna end on a positive note, on an upbeat note, because you talked about what Russia's doing wrong. 
the logical follow-on question is, what are we doing right? We here in the United States and in the West more broadly, what are we doing right to really sort of set the table in the informational domain? What are the lessons for places where we're not performing as well as we should, right? What's working? Well, what's working, it doesn't, it doesn't seem that way sometimes, but probably what is working is time, time and information. It's clear from the frantic nature of authoritarian regimes to block out information from outside that they recognize the danger of information coming in, uh, whether it's um, just Western news media in, in various languages, whether it is uh, actual pro-free society campaigning that Western governments or civil society organizations engage in. This is a real threat to them. History is is cyclical. Uh, the, the, whole, the whole history of humanity from the Bible on forward has always been about throwing off oppression sooner or later and establishing some kind of freedom. I don't think that people in very many nations dream of um, a life of police surveillance and being, being put in prison for, for saying the wrong thing. None of this is on the, uh, on, on the real side of history, I think, in the, in the upcoming cycle, at least. And so uh, I think it's just important not to lose our nerve and to add scale to the things we do now in terms of communication and messaging. There are losses. I mean, bad things happen. But overall, authoritarians are not geniuses. And sooner or later, they tend to, to fail. But they will fail faster if uh, we're more assertive, have more belief in ourselves, and continue to be active, particularly in information, which is so important. That's a perfect place to stop. Tom, thank you so much for pleasure. your insights and, and, and for, for all the important work you do. Great. Thanks very much. Thank you for tuning in to Disinformation Wars. To learn more about the American Foreign Policy Council and our work on public diplomacy, visit us online at www.afpc.org. And as always, we hope you'll join us again next time.